1: Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell from the Church Planner Podcast, and I want to welcome you to today's episode, and unfortunately, we don't have Peyton, and yet, this episode is all from Peyton. Peyton decided that with uh, this being the holidays, he wanted to spend some quality time with his family, so he gave us uh, a great uh, podcast that we're going to play for you here in just a second. This is a talk he gave on race reconciliation, the gospel and race reconciliation, that uh, I think uh, everyone listening can get some great ideas from. And, uh, and as always, I just want to remind you that this episode is being brought to you by Mogive. They are an online and text-based giving platform built specifically for the needs of new and growing churches. So if you're sitting there wondering how in the world can we get people to give more to our church, you need to make it easy for them to give. Great example, I was going to give to a nonprofit profit uh, for my year-end uh, tax benefit, and they didn't have an online solution. And they did miss out on that money. And it just kills me because... Uh, I know some people uh, associated with it listen to the podcast, and I'm sitting there going, if only you had MoGiv. I would highly recommend that you get MoGiv. We use it at our church plants. Uh, Peyton uses it at his nonprofit, and uh, and you'll get uh, some great service from them, and it'll be great for your church and, and really help uh, make it easy for people to give to you. So anyway, here is the podcast with Peyton Jones, The Gospel and Race Reconciliation.
2: Uh, so we got to know them. And so, uh, when Zach and Natasha moved here, we had just come back from Wales. And so we kind of hung out with them a bit. So it's kind of weird to have all these strange connections with this church, you know, and not have ever met you. So nice to meet you. So I have to apologize this morning because, uh, when Vince asked me to come and preach, I was all excited. And, uh, he said, well, can you, can you do the race? topic because I run a podcast called uh, the Church Planner Podcast, and we don't shy away from these issues because they're very important to church planning, and, and, and so I, I said, yeah, that'd be great, and I was very excited to come here, and then I'm working on a book project with Zondervan, and they dropped my book after I agreed to it, and they dropped my book manuscript on me and said, hey, we need it Tuesday. Can you look at it and get it back to us, and it's the last time I get to touch it, and now that I'm looking, I'm seeing all these things wrong. So I've been like a hermit. So I apologize if this sermon sucks. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say to you. So that's uh, so why you have no screens. I told, I told uh, Vince, I won't even get to this thing until Saturday, man. So anyways, we'll see what happens. So, okay. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And after that Lloyd-Jones uh, introduction, I should have brought the pulpit Bible. So I actually own his pulpit Bible. That's kind of my... And his pulpit thermometer. Does that impress you? That was kind of my last-ditch effort because the sermon's going to suck at, like, impressing you. Figured if nothing else, that would be it. Okay, Ephesians 2, and we're going to look at verse 11. Therefore, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made both one And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those of you that were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his heart. Thank you, Lord, for his insight. Thank you, Lord, that he was a man who had all kinds of prejudice and racist notions hardwired into him. And yet the gospel blew those completely away. Lord, I thank you that as homogenous as he was, Lord, you gave him a heart for people other than his own. He never lost his heart for his own people, but he soon realized that they were all his people. Jesus, I pray that we would see this world, see each other, see ourselves through your eyes and realize, Lord, that you have brought all peoples on the earth together to glorify your name, to leave the place where your glory shines out. And Father, I pray that here in this local body, Lord, through your global body, you would shine out your glory, particularly in these times, Lord, where the world doesn't have the answers. It knows what it wants, but it doesn't know how to get there. And in Christ alone has found the solution. Christ alone breaks down those middle walls of hostility. Lord, I pray that your church would lead this world. We ask Jesus that we would be that place where people see your glory. Just as in the civil rights movement, Lord, in this country years ago when your church led the way. Jesus, we pray, glorify yourself now and Father, change us. Lord, go after those areas in our heart. As David said, search me, Lord, and know me. See if there is any unclean way within me. Lord, search us now by your Holy Spirit. Go after those areas that don't yet conform to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to confess to you that I am probably not the most qualified person to speak on race issues, but I will also confess that I feel like a black man trapped in a white man's body. (laughs) There are various reasons for that, which I won't embarrass myself with, but what I will tell you, is that I've been leading a church in Long Beach for about four years. I no longer do that. I've uh, hung that up, but they didn't pay me enough. And uh, now we, we, we went into to, to the, the urban neighborhoods in Long Beach, planted a church, and uh, our neighborhood that we were in was the poorest neighborhood in the district. It was 50% African American, 30% Hispanic, And the rest was just a mix of everything else. There were Cambodians, there were uh, Anglos, there were Asians, there was, you know, whatever, everything. All, All the rest was 20%. And when I first went in there, we were a white parachute drop from Orange County going into Long Beach. And, of course, you know when you cross that LA boundary, it immediately goes from, like, Republican to Democrat. Conservative to liberal, and, and we had to tell people, we said, look, uh, white Orange County people, parachute dropping into this neighborhood, you have to understand all that stuff, A, needs to be left behind, B, is going to change in you, whatever you've brought with you, you're about to become a missionary, a cross cultural missionary, and you were going to change. But that wasn't enough for us. What we wanted to see was the church plant itself, and I think any church plant worth its salt, ends up reflecting the community. And it was a desperate prayer we had as a church planting team. God, please don't make us the white parachute drop church in urban Long Beach. And God was good to us. We didn't. We didn't know that. We we didn't know like how to reflect the community. So we prayed. I think most of the things that you do to try to make that happen seem forced and weird. So I just prayed. I'm like God. I'm a clueless white guy. I have no idea how to do this. So you're gonna have to help me out. And he did. And that's all I can tell you. There are things we learned along the way, but we knew. And I knew from having been a cross-cultural missionary, uh, by the way, these, these dynamics exist wherever you go in the globe. If you're in Europe today, you don't talk about the Mexicans coming and stealing all of our jobs, which is just ridiculous to begin with. What you talk about in Europe is you talk about those Polish people coming and stealing all of our jobs. It's the exact same conversation. It's just different people fighting over the same resources. In Long Beach, like you, we've experienced heartbreak. We've conducted more funerals than we want to. We've baptized people, literally a hitman from the Mexican mafia, right next to a 36-year member of the Aryan Brotherhood. We've also watched people that we have baptized shot in the back wrongfully by police six times. We've cried together, we've hurt together, and we've healed together. I don't have any easy answers for the things that plague America, but I do have one. And Paul points to this here. What he does is he speaks into a church which is dealing with these tensions, these tensions of culture and ethnicity. And he's writing primarily, strangely, to the people that culturally were the privileged. But in the church, felt like the second class citizens. That's a very unique situation. And as Paul writes to them, first thing he does in that passage that we read in verses 11 and 12 is he first off points out that the distinctions by which we define ourselves are man-made. Listen, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, notice he says at one time, hearken back how you used to identify yourself, Gentiles in the flesh. So there's automatically this kind of begging the question that you used to think of yourself that way. You used to define yourself by your ethnicity. That was your identity. But then Jesus came. And like Forrest Gump, he broke up their Black Panther party. (laughs) Remember that line? Sorry I fought in your old Black Panther party. Here's the deal. Jesus comes in and he changes how they see their identity. And isn't that kind of the struggle all throughout the Old Testament? I mean, you're 829ers. You're Reformed Christians. Identity is everything to you. We are in Christ justified in him. We are new creations, all the old. He talks about the regulations, all that. However, you saw yourself before, it's done, it's gone. And Paul writes here, he says, At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called. Notice it's the emphasis on what you call yourself, how you identify yourself, which is made in the flesh by hands. I love the fact he goes, and this is a man made distinction. It was done to you by men. I've done enough interviews on Church Planner podcasts with. Guys like Derwin Gray, Ephraim Smith, all these guys that come on. And I love it when someone points out there is only one race, and that is the human race. That's the message we need to hear more of. Now, are there ethnic distinctions? Like I said, I'm a black man trapped in a white man's body. I feel like there was a mistake somewhere in heaven. God is putting it all together. I'm like, God, I think you made a mistake here. I know to those of you of, of color, I am very white. I know that's very obvious. That's the body talking, not the soul. But we're so easily drawn into these distinctions, aren't we? On television, during our political race, men versus women. And all of a sudden, we, we get sucked into it. Like, yeah, all of a sudden I have thoughts about men and I have thoughts about women. And all of a sudden, men and women who normally would not have polarized suddenly start identifying themselves as men and women. I am a man that's true about me, but it's not my identity. I don't walk around the house. I, I actually do do this. I've done this a bunch this week because I have a six centimeter, but I walk around, but, but not really. But this week I have been walking around going, me, Tarzan, you, you, you Jane, Jane, boy, come, cheetah, come. You know, I, I do have these conversations. My wife will tell you this has been a conversation, but I don't really think of myself that way. But we get so sucked into it. Suddenly the world, man, puts these identities on us and wants us to get squirmed and stuffed back into these boxes. And yet Paul in Galatians says, for there is no longer slave nor free in Christ. There is no longer male nor female in Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile in Christ. That is no longer your identity. Sorry, baby. I know I'm screaming. I can scream louder than you. I told him I don't even need this if it doesn't work. Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus liberal. These are all labels. And suddenly when the argument's going on, you find yourself sucked right back into that category. And you react accordingly. Black lives matter. All lives matter. You see people polarizing on these things. Gay versus straight. And the reality is that we are complex human beings. I will tell you, I always side on, I hear black lives matter. I'm like, yeah, I'm there. Boom. As I told you, I'm black man trapped. I always end up on the side where white people often don't. I've heard about you as a church. I heard that you start thinking about these things through the lens of the gospel. And that's where Paul is trying to get them to think. You see, no one of these distinctions I've made up actually can define you. Because you're too complex. Just in that whole swath of things. Now put all of those together and you become this huge puzzle with all of these different pieces. And in each one of those categories, including ethnicity, we are trying to find what does God think? What does Jesus think? The Gentiles in this passage felt that they were second-class citizens in the church, just like many people in our country feel right now. That can be Mexican, that can be the black community, that can be Arab, I mean, I married into an Arabic family. Now, I just want to tell you, you know how much it hurts to be an Arab? Just right now, I want you just to think of one positive example from American culture of an Arab. Just one. You can name it out. If you got it, name it. One positive example in American culture of an Arab. Because I can think of a list of positive People from other cultures that I could list off. Any anyone got one? Aladdin. Hmm? <laughs> Aladdin. Okay. So a cartoon, Disney cartoon. What's that? Princess Jasmine. Princess Jasmine. All right. All right. Male and female. I appreciate you being uh, fair on that. <laughs> So, so here's the idea. You, you know what's more concerning than the racism we know about is the racism that we're not aware of. That's the racism that's really scary. The, the latent racism, the stuff that that's just and we're not aware of it i'm helped when people start pointing out the inconsistencies of how i treat others i'm helped by that because as it comes into the light i can take it back to the foot of the cross back to the feet of jesus and i can say oh god help me this exists it's been brought out into the light and i never saw it before thank you god it's interesting, isn't it, that in the early church, the first tension that the church had was between the Hellenists. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit drops like an atomic bomb in Jerusalem. People are getting saved every day. There's thousands of new converts. They're distributing food, and suddenly, ethnic tensions. That threatens to rip the whole thing apart. You know, as you start going through your Bible, you start seeing That we're like, hey, hey, we don't want to talk about race. We don't want to talk about that in the church. The Bible is full of it being addressed, being dealt with, being challenged. They're all there. And there are false distinctions. And the apostles are wise. They're like, look, the Hellenists feel like they're getting left out of this whole thing. So let's appoint Hellenist leaders. It was just wise. You know what? Hey, hold on a second. This can't be like the good old boys club. We can't just have Jewish because even within we talk about ethnic tensions. When I lived in Wales, there were the Welsh and the Welsh hated what was called the Scythes. Now the Welsh are the oldest Celtics. The English are Germanics. They came from across the water from the mainland continent and they took their land. So there's the sice, you know. That's the Welsh word for "we hate English people." So it's a racial slur. And so what happened was when the coal mining days uh, came, coal was king in the 1800s. There was a huge mass migration of all the Welsh from all over down in the south, so that 90 percent of the population lived in 10 percent. Of the land, the very beginning, at the very bottom where the ribbons of coal were. Now they went down, they lived, they served, they died in those coal mines. But in the process, they lost their language. The oldest Celtic language is Welsh. It's older than Celtic Gaelic, right? Irish Gaelic. So Welsh is the oldest Celtic language. And what you would find that would start to happen within those groups was, well, they're not real Welsh, See, more of those man-made distinctions. Right? There were Jews and then there were Hellenists that were raised in other parts of the world. They weren't like real Jews. They weren't like the Jerusalem Jews. Wherever we go, not only are we making distinctions between how we look, but also within these groups we make distinctions between how we act. And it leads to further fragmentation and further division so the apostles found that they had to include the gospel and all these problems all these things and i want you just to think for a second we're in ephesians here and we always go back to ephesians chapter 1 and we you're 829ers so you, uh, you you know what it is you know you, you go back to ephesians 1 you talk about calling and election and adoption and all that but i want you just to go back to a time where these guys got this letter and and before the world knew of a John Calvin or a predestination or any of that, and just hear what he's saying to them. You Gentiles, you Gentiles, you weren't an afterthought. Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen. They knew that term because they were sitting in church side by side with people who claimed to be God's chosen people. I'm more special in church than you. I'm more Christian than you. And Paul says, look, look, sure, to them, and he points out in the verses here, he says, hey, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, there's this but now, there's this pivotal change where you no longer from the second Jesus entered, in your life. You were given all the fullness. And so when he opens up the letter, he really kind of decimates that whole elitism within the church. What he's doing is he's saying, Gentile, before the found... And I, I know, you guys are like, don't take my Calvin from me. I'm not taking your Calvin. But I'm just saying, read it in the original context. You were chosen. Just like the chosen people before the foundation of the world... The Gentiles were a part of God's eternal plan of salvation. You were grafted in in the fullness of time. But you were a part of the original thought of God. God just chose the Jewish people to be the torchbearers for who he was in his holiness in the Old Testament. But you are those who will preach his grace to the rest of the world. To those who deserve Nothing. Do you see how powerful it is? Jesus changed everything. I suppose, really, you you can't trump any arguments about ethnicity any higher than when you bring the creator in. Right? So he does. You know what the creator thinks about you? I mean, you guys think all kinds of stuff about each other, but boom. Here's what your creator thinks. That's a pretty big argument. So in verses 13, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They were only a far off because they didn't have the tabernacle. They didn't have the ordinances. They didn't have any revelation really is the point. But Paul's going to come back and say, neither one of them could enter the Holy of Holies. That took Jesus. That's my third point. I just jumped ahead. That's a sneak peek. He says, having no hope without God and without Christ in the world, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed. You see, what he's really saying is this is how the creator sees you. The creator doesn't see you as Jew and Gentile. He sees only two types of people in this world. And that's not the definitions you use. It's not the way you identify yourself. What God sees is he sees those who can approach him and those who can't. And there was only one human being who ever lived who could approach the father. And all of the rest of you needed To be a part of his humanity. There was humanity that could approach God. And humanity that couldn't. And Jesus had to make you. Into what he was. Thus making a new man out of the two. The two who could not approach God. This new humanity as Lloyd-Jones called it. It's the new humanity. And so in the world as the world tries to solve the problems of ethnic tensions, Paul says he himself is our peace, who has broken down the middle wall, middle mall, uh, the, the middle wall is only tiny, the middle wall of Hostel. You can get great deals there. But when you come to Christ, all the things that define us, I mean, you, you know how it is, right? You know how like certain things about you used to define yourself. Not even ethnic things, but things like uh, when you're really fat, you feel you feel kind of like bad about yourself. You know, do I look fat up here? You know, but when you're fit, remember the Nutty Professor, Eddie Murphy gets all skinny. He's like a jerk. He just feels so good, right? He feels good at the expense of everyone else. But we define ourselves. There's guys walking around. I'm awesome. I'm awesome because I'm super fit. Then you feel awesome. You do. But there's a false distinction. And you don't feel awesome when you're overweight. You just don't feel good about yourself. But those distinctions aren't real. Smart versus stupid. Right? I mean, you get around people sometimes and they're talking and you're like, I don't, I'm just going to laugh like, ha ha. <laughs> I'm going to pretend I understand their jokes. I have no idea what these people are talking about. Right? And you're all laughing because you do. And, and, and in certain, certain crowds, you feel really smart. They were like, tell us more about that. And you're like, well, back in Walking Dead season four, verse two, if you will look at the first five minutes of the, you know, whatever it is, you can be an expert in anything and feel really smart. When you come to Christ, things don't stop being true. You, you might be an expert in this field or you might be really fit, but they're just not where your identity is because your soul really only has one culture. When you know him and that's heaven, it's eternity. You're from that culture. You're from an eternal kingdom now. And so your perspective on everything should change on yourself, your identity. I mean, how many times in this chapter did Paul try to nail you on where your identity is? Have you read chapter one of Ephesians in him, in Christ, 17 times in chapter one, 17 times. And we're still like, yeah, dude, I'm a, like total fitness, dude. No, you're not. That's not who you are. That's just where your body's at right now. But that's not you. That's not your real identity. You're not a stud because you work out. Who you really are is someone who can walk into the presence of God because you're in Him. Amen? What a game changer. That's the miracle of the gospel. You see, the world right now in society, it can't remove this hostility. It knows where it wants to be, but we are failing. I mean, if you've read the news, you know we are failing at racial reconciliation and everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else. So I don't see any hope right now that it's going to get better anytime soon because as long as you're doing this to everybody else, you know what it's like when you're married. There's not going to be any healing coming. It comes when we start going, oh, okay. And only in the safety of the gospel can I do that. Realizing that I am so wrecked and so jacked up. I mean, it may surprise you that the apostles themselves were racists when they started out. I wish I had a mic. (laughs) (laughs) They were racists. Did you know this? They turn up. Jesus goes out of his way to meet with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. By the way, the Samaritans, the problem with Samaria to a Jewish person was it was filled with Samaritans. Okay. That was a problem with Samaria. The Samaritans were half breeds between Assyrians and Jews, and they mixed and mingled the religion until the horror Of Jewish people, they're like, oh my gosh, like it it was, we could become that. And so there's this revulsion and they felt all the things that racist people feel about a people they don't like. They multiply too fast. They spread like cockroaches and they're just as disgusting. Now, if you don't understand that about first century Jewish people, you don't understand the Bible. So when they come up to Jesus, who's talking to this woman, they're repulsed. And this scripture doesn't hide their racism. It brings out into the light. Because the gospel is going to heal it. So it says, when they come upon him, they say, What's he doing talking to this Samaritan woman? A, she was a woman. Remember those false distinctions. And B, she was a Samaritan. And they're repulsed. They're a little bit scandalized. Listen, when God has to appear three times to Peter in a vision, not once. I mean, you think once enough, right? Like if you had a big, powerful vision, you'd be like, that's cool, God, I'm good. Okay, go to to the races of people that I don't like. Once, twice, three times a lady. That's how many times. Third time's a charm. God has to come to Peter that many times to break him of his racism. Do we understand that? I don't think we do. Do you think it was on accident that Jesus, when he told the parable, of the Good Samaritan, made the religious people the jerks in the story and made the hero the oppressed? and despised ethnic group. I was the hero of the story. Jesus was being very intentional because the original question, I mean, that whole parable is so deep on so many levels, but remember the original question, who is my neighbor? People you don't like. He eliminates the middle wall of hostility because when we identify ourselves as family like the creator does and we stop defining ourselves and identifying ourselves the way that society wants to put labels on us, then we rise above those things. And brothers, sisters, we need to rise above the clamor of the world right now. We need to rise above it. That three-and-a-half-foot wall, there was a three-and-a-half-foot wall in the temple courtyard, in the outer courtyard, that you remember, it, it was, it was three-and-a-half-foot. It, it, it had a sign over it that said, upon penalty of death, no Gentile may cross over. That's what he's talking about. The middle wall of partition, it was about Yehi, And that's what Paul got handcuffed for in the book of Acts for crossing over. They thought that he drugged Titus and Timothy past that. Remember, remember your Bible? That was it. And he says, he has abolished this. And let's get honest, because here's the deal. Are there middle walls of partition in your mind that 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 Christ needs to abolish? Are there prejudices? And let's be honest, because what really scares me is I can get into a a, a place and you know, obviously, because you know, we're from a more um, how do I say it, more academic, more theological background. Um we get into this weird place where we want to be right all the time. Want our thoughts to be right. Want, want our theology to be all stitched up. Want everything to be in this little box. And with that comes this, almost this sense, it, it can go either way. Sometimes we can be more honest and it can lead to a, more of an openness. And Lord, you know, I realize how, how wrong I am about, but, but other times it can lead to the opposite. It can lead us to kind of lock out anything. We, we don't like to lose arguments. We don't like to... Be wrong because we like to be right. And this is the point at which we can erect defense mechanisms so that when we hear things that challenge us, quick that knee jerk reflection, uh, re- uh, re- reflex, sorry, comes up. And so as we look at this in the Scripture, I think one of the things that we need to do as a church is to be open so that we can lead the way. Remember, I prayed that earlier, that the church would lead the way. Often the church is on the wrong side of social issues. Have you noticed that? The popular voice, and you're going, wait, that doesn't represent the gospel. Why are you saying that? Why are you acting that way? That's not the gospel. And of course, we can look back during the time where the abolitionists got it right, and they said, wait a second, we're reading our Bibles, and it says, and we stand up and go, here, here, yay, the church, yes. But in our own day, we have our blind spots. And because we have our blind spots, we can easily look back and ignore our own blind spots today. I want to real quick um, just read something from, Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., letter letter from a Birmingham jail. Anybody ever read that? Anybody read it? It's long. I can't read the whole thing to you, but I'm going to read it. uh, uh, uh. Because here's the deal. This is what happens. What Martin Luther King Jr. could not understand when he was locked in that jail, as he answered his critics, that's what it is. It's an answer to the white clergymen in Birmingham, who were like, why is this outsider coming in here, stirring up all kinds of trouble? Those... We're the leaders of the church, right? And he writes to him, "It's such a gracious letter, but it's a prophetic letter." And he writes to him, just really, what I would say is the embodiment of this passage. And that's why I'm going to read it. Now, you're not supposed to read long quotes in church. It's considered bad form, but I'm going to stand with A.W. Tozer who said he had preached himself out of almost every conference he had been invited to. (laughs) Because he believed that's how he ended up being the mouthpiece of God. So this is going to be a little bit longer, but I promise won't hold you long after this. Okay? Make sense? We Can we make that deal? And I may skip it because it is, even my quote is like a fraction of it, but it's probably too long. My dear fellow clergymen, and, and this is what I want to say real quick. I don't know if you're aware, the civil rights movement really didn't start changing the face of America until they televised the marches. It was considered, why are those black people so upset all the time? You heard that recently? And what happened was it got to the abuse that the marchers were facing. Women, children, I mean, horrific things got televised, and white America suddenly went, oh. And so Martin Luther King Jr. writing this letter is appealing to white Christians to stand with their black brothers and sisters as family, as one people, as That new humanity. Make sense? (laughs) I don't preach often anymore, so this is why I'm like, are you with me? (laughs) My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism, my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticism that crosses my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I'd have no time to get stuff done. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill, and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I'm here in Birmingham since you've been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in. I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world. So I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. One of the basic points in your statement is that the action I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is untimely. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. And frankly, I've yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence. It's amazing to read this, right, like this many years on, but to, to hear that that still hadn't happened in those countries. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, When you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? when you take a cross-county drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in an uncomfortable corner of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes the N-word, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mr. or Mrs., when you were harried by day and night, by the fact that you are a Negro, leaving constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his strive towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time. Who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. If you want to understand the Black Lives Matter movement, you just heard it. Prophetically, fifty six years ago. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. I'm going to have to switch through. Um, I have pages of this. I knew. I knew better. I'm like, you can't read. I want to speed ahead where he says, he mentions exceptions, people that have marched and gone to jail. But he says, I must honestly reiterate, I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as, now he's writing this from Birmingham jail. This is a dark moment for him. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church. Who is nurtured in its bosom. Who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the court of life shall lengthen. In spite of my shattered dreams, I come. I came to Birmingham with the hope that white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that you would each understand, but again, I've been disappointed. I have heard numerous southern religious leaders and monitor worshippers to comply with desegregation decision because it's the law, but I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right, Because the Negro is your brother in Christ. I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. If I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and secular. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp Autumn mornings. I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship there? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured, my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am rather in a unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformist. My favorite. This is in my first book, this quote right here. It's called Church Zero. Cha-ching! You should buy it. <laughs> my second book, by the way. No, just joke. May 2017. Look for it. There was a time, I love this quote, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. There was a time when the church was very powerful. in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on. It is the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, a power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is on the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irreverent or irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright distrust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to serve our nation and the world? I mean, do you hear this? Are you, are you just feeling like, no, Paul. You know? We're the family of God. We're the change agent meant to be in the world. Are you feeling me? I'm waiting for you to finish so we can stand up and applaud. Okay, okay, I'm almost there. Hold on, brother. Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking. But again, I am thinking. But again, I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and they have walked with us and they have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church has not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. I hope that, wait, (laughs) I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow minister and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away. The deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some, not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Martin Luther King, Jr. Okay, go, bro. Go. (laughs) What would it look like if the church... I mean, that, that, the, obviously of the 20th century, this was the church's greatest hour. And, and let's be honest, it was really the black church in America led the way in social change in America. Like I said, it's the prejudice we don't see that scares me because the world sees it. And the world has been leading social change ahead of the church. And brothers, that should not be. If we are those that believe in the gospel, then the gospel, believe it or not, the gospel is what ought to be leading these things, and the world will eventually catch up. These principles of equality were laid down in this passage as how the creator sees us. And the church was slow to catch up. Like the apostles, one vision, two vision, three visions. How many civil rights movements will we need in America? Do we need a Hispanic civil rights movement? Before the church rises up again and says, yes, we support you. Do we need an Asian civil rights movement? Do we need these things? What if the church led? This is my point. And brothers... I'm, I'm going to step out. You don't need to ask me to speak again. But if we're American, we got democracy. I'm t- I don't care. I don't got to pastor you. We're known for bigotry, because when it came around whether people that were homosexual could get married, we didn't grab onto the scripture and say, "Hey, you know what? This is about what God's in plan for your life is." Like, and that's completely different. We got on the bandwagon and basically told them, "God hates you all." Forget equality and civil rights. We stood on the wrong thing, And and I'm I'm, going to say it. I don't care if you ever invite me back. We stood on the wrong side of civil rights because we stood over here on morals that the government can't enact. That wasn't the issue at stake. The issue at stake wasn't what does God think about homosexuality? The issue at stake was what's fair to everyone in this society to live as they want. Make sense? And what we did is we who believe in grace, and guys, I see homosexuals come to faith. I see them leave same-sex attraction lifestyles. I don't know, maybe, you know, a lot of them still deal with same-sex attraction. That might be with them for the rest of their life. But guys, I'm in the trenches in Long Beach. We're in the Rainbow District. On our very first day, a lesbian came up and she, she, she spoke up and said, Hey, all this grace, love, and mercy you're preaching, because we do church in the open air. She goes, What does this have to do with me? And I knew I'm going to lose half my core team right now because I'm going to preach the gospel. The gospel means the same for you as anyone else. And I literally heard Christians from our core team go. (gasps) But it was saved because somebody else stood up and said, hey, you think you're a wreck? I lived on the street for three years. Girl, blonde hair. You know, well put together, would never have guessed. You said the stuff I had to do during those three years. You don't even want to know. But Jesus got a hold of me and someone else stood up. And another person, it was like, I was just standing back like, this is awesome. I have to do a thing. Everybody just started going, oh, you think you're God's problem, child? Look at me. What if we led? Just just now, what if we had led on AIDS researches? Can you just imagine how different that would have been? If we had led, I know I'm going out, but again, this is all about identity. How do you identify? The the LGBT society, that community defines itself by sexuality. Again, another box that the world, gay or straight. Here's the deal. What if the church had led? What if the world learned like this to go, oh my gosh, we've made the Christians mad again. Not because they're bigots. But because they believe something so powerful. But the rest of the world needs to catch up to it. And we lead the way on these things. Here's the reality. When Paul ends, and sorry guys, I know I'm being really strong on this, but um, Vince knows who I am. He knows, he, he knows how I, I get on a podcast sometimes and you know, we, we, we go. But look, I want you to think. I don't want you to just be intimidated because i'm talking tough up here here's the reality in long beach i'll never forget when ferguson happened white boy from orange county went to like the barbie nation over in not sweden but went to uh wales which is all white people all the time over there in europe this is whiter than white they make any white person in here look dark right there's no sun over there It rains all the time it's always overcast they are white 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 they have glow in the dark babies there. No joke. <laughs> and so here's the deal. I'm over there, and, 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 and I come back and I'm stepping into this, and we're planting in urban long beach, and half of our congregation is African American, like I said, third Hispanic, like we mirrored the community. And here's the deal Ferguson happens, and I I don't know what to say. And so I just said, guys, can we pray? And I prayed into the hurt and into the pain of that situation. I felt the Holy Spirit just fill. I've never in my life received a standing ovation for a prayer before. But that church that day felt what Paul was talking about. We are a new humanity. Our identity is in Christ. We are family and we are one. And it was a beautiful moment. The only place I have ever really experienced hope for this world is right where Paul brings us back, in Christ. And we're going to take communion because the last thing that I was going to bring up, my third point, was where Paul just says again, and I'll just reemphasize the last few verses. He says, for through him both we have access, through the Spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. We through his body, he abolished the enmity. Through his death on the cross, Paul says. He had to come as that second Adam, as that representation of this new humanity who didn't accept any of these categories, who didn't accept the false identities that the world will try to put on us, but instead said, your new identity, your old identity, is you can't approach the Father. But your new identity is in you, are in me, and we will approach him together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would live out our theology. Lord, that we would not hide, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, behind theological platitudes, that we would absolve our hands of the deaths of men like Pilate. Lord, I pray. As Mary, Queen of Scott said about John Knox, I fear nothing more than that man's prayers. Or I pray that the church would not be an irrelevant body anymore, but it would be that source of power. Paul paints the picture in Ephesians, if we pull back of the church being the temple at the end of that passage, where the glory of God radiates out of this new humanity that stands together. Oh, Father, may the world see us standing together as one and scratch their head and say, how on earth do they do it? How have they achieved racial reconciliation? And the only answer that we can point to is say in him,
1: in Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to Peyton Jones on the church planter podcast. We will be back with a regular episode next week. We look forward to talking with you then. And uh, as a final reminder, this podcast episode was brought to you by simplify church. When you are looking for a way to make your church life. Well, a little bit simpler. You head on over to SimplifyChurch.com com and tell them Pete and Peyton sent you. They'll help you out with all your bookkeeping and accounting needs, payroll, IRS compliance. They even do web design. Basically, they do everything to make your life simpler. So head on over to SimplifyChurch.com and let them know that Pete and Peyton sent you. Thanks so much, guys. We will talk to you next week with a regular podcast episode with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com.